Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the third weekend of July 2023. We are now more than halfway through the month and so far I've only seen 0.02 inches of precipitation at the airport. It has been a dry first half of the month. If you've been taking advantage of the sunny and dry weather with the long days, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or you can get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. The conversation I have for this week's show is one I recorded a couple of weeks ago with Matt Bracken. Ordinarily, I'd introduce him here, but when we recorded, he offered a nice introduction of himself, so we'll go ahead and start there. My name is Matt Bracken, and I'm a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of California, Irvine. I study the causes and consequences of changes in marine biodiversity in a lot of different ways. And I come by that interest in marine biodiversity and marine systems. And naturally, I grew up in Petersburg, living on, playing in and on and around the water for the first 18 plus years of my life until I headed off to college and then was coming back to Southeast Alaska and working for the Forest Service and Fish and Game for many years after that before I then went off to grad school and um, eventually got a, you know, got a PhD in zoology and then um, have slowly migrated my way southward, now ending up in Southern California. But still, especially since 2014 as a science and residency fellow here at the Science Center, once they got that program up and running, I've been coming back to Southeast Alaska and trying to learn more about these systems that you kind of grow up in a place and you see it and you you feel it, but actually trying to understand mechanisms and reasons and what's actually going on in how organisms live and interact with each other here. Yeah, nice. Long-time listeners might remember that I spoke with you and Cascade back in, yeah, 2014, I guess is probably when you were scientists and residence fellows here. You, at the time, were working at John Brown's Beach doing some manipulations of tide pools, as I recall, where you were looking at shifting CO2 in the tide pools. And and I can't remember if you were putting some plastic over the top to heat them up or, you know, in some ways manipulate other than just the gas. That was some preliminary experiments trying to understand what would happen if you added carbon dioxide to these tide pools. And we were, at the time, playing around with different methods for heating them up Um, I think we're mostly using hand warmers, but either battery powered or other things that you could sort of try to put in there. And we were able to make some progress. And we got one interesting paper published out of that. It did, you know, the system did change. We showed changes in things like the nutrient ratios and the seaweeds and the tide pools and uh, shifts in productivity and things like that, even over the relatively short time period that we were here doing the science and residency work. And that provided pilot preliminary data as well for a proposal that we have submitted and were funded to do work here in partnership with the Sitka Sound Science Center to do that project in a more complete way. And so we're finally starting to get results from that work back now, but they do look pretty interesting. And um, so that went on for several more years. I think we finally finished that up and uh, finished the experiments up in 2020 and came back to do some follow-up work in 2021. And since then, we've been trying to figure out more ways to get involved in the community and the natural systems here. And so that's really what we're doing here this summer is collecting more data and trying to ramp up some new projects. Mm. You know, one of the things that strikes me about the intertidal is it's just so variable from 
tide to tide, like if the tide's out versus in and what the organisms there have to deal with is pretty radically different, uh, it seems like. And yet, so so I would assume based on that, that there's a fair amount of resilience uh, to to changes because they're dealing with a cycle of changes that's that's pretty uh, extreme, it seems like to me. But on the other hand, there's this really strict zonation. I mean, it's not super strict, some things, but but there's a clear, maybe I'll say, zonation of things. Like there are bands where you find certain organisms and outside of that band, you don't really see them as much. And so I was just thinking about that because we have a low tide series here as we're recording it. It's, it's minus three tides with a little atmospheric assist got us down to a minus three seven, which is an exceptionally low tide here. Uh, might be our lowest of the year here in Sitka this year. And I was, when I was down at the beach just looking for stuff this morning, I was thinking about that. I was like, oh, they, there is a resilience here. There must be because they're surviving being out of the water on the one hand. But on the other hand, there are still these zones. So <laughs> there must be a sensitivity as well at some level. And I don't know how much your manipulations are getting into that or if they're, they're looking at different dimensions. You're absolutely right that organisms on rocky shores are resilient. But they're also fundamentally marine organisms that are living, depending on how high they are on the shore, part of their lives every day in a terrestrial environment that's very different. And so they have to have all these strategies for closing up or preventing drying out or things like that. And um, that kind of common dogma for these rocky shorelines is that the upper distributional limit. So the tops of those zones you were talking about are set by abiotic factors, physical factors, things like temperature and desiccation stress. And then the lower limits are usually set by biological factors, things like competition or predation. I was just out at Magic Island and actually comparing there to, um, we've been doing work at there and some work over at Stargavin at that rocky reef, that sort of little high tide island that's right below old Sitka Park there. And actually kind of thinking about some of the differences. For example, the mussels go much lower on the shore at Stargavin than they do at Magic Island. And I think it's because there are so many more starfish at Magic Island. And, they're, and um, they set that lower distributional limit and um, are much more effective at controlling from low on the shore toward high on the shore the abundance of those mussels there. Yeah, I guess I hadn't really thought about that. I, I... You know, Stargavin is so much calmer than than Magic Island, but that I guess wouldn't necessarily affect the muscles. They they seem like they're pretty tough and able to withstand a certain amount of surge and and so forth. And I guess I mean, in the end, doing natural stu- studies in natural environments, there's I suppose it's always a, a challenge to tease apart the differences and trying to understand which ones are meaningful. You know, exposure to uh, or how how fresh the water gets. Some um, right. being one example, uh, or how much wave action there is, and or how much colder the cold in the winter time. I've wondered about that sometimes. Like in the last few years, we've had some good low tides that were accompanied by a high pressure system in the winter, which brings that you know Arctic cold sort of uh, stuff happening, and and so temperatures get well below freezing and then of course the low tides in the winter are at nighttime so it's even that much colder often windy which probably doesn't help and so then that makes me wonder is you know would that be one of the the things that could 
keep things from, although I suppose mobile things could move up seasonally and down seasonally to protect themselves certain, uh, to a certain extent. But there's just so many different things going on. It, <laughs> how do you simplify it down to try and uh, you know, understand in a comprehensible way uh, at least what some of the th- effects are? And, and you're absolutely right with respect to the freezing. There are um, long-term studies in places that have demonstrated that those low-temperature freezing events can shift and set zonation patterns, and they can cause die-offs when species are exposed at low tide. I mean, one thing to remember and think about, these species you said are resilient. But if those upper distributional limits are set by current physical stresses, temperature, drying out, things like that, then as temperatures increase or those stresses increase, the species are going to be shifted lower on the shore. And what we find in intertidal systems is a lot of these species right there, they're really close to a tipping point. And so, and they can be also squeezed because you have these, you know, if sea level rise is squeezing them from the bottom and temperatures are squeezing them from the top, you could end up with real compression of these zones and shifts in zonation patterns. And you should be able to measure that. Hmm. Yeah, I guess, is there a sense of, how I mean, when you have a really like, so for example, at Totem Park here in Sydney, we have these big tide flats. Also similar at, at Stargaven, although where you, the little high water island you're talking about, if I'm uh, understanding you, is is closer to the boat ramp, so it's not as much of a tide flat there as it is over closer to Stargaven Creek. Uh, but you have these these like the fucus zone at Totem Park is huge, and the mussels there, like, it, and it's not really that much. If, if you were going to go based on depth, it's not very much depth difference. It's just such a, a flat there that they have a lot of area uh, to cover. Whereas on a steep, you know, there are places in Silver Bay where like the entire muscle zone, you know, laterally might be a few inches because that drops two feet in those few inches, you know. And so there's this very clear band. But how is it that folks study the changes in the um, zonation in the in the intertidal? It requires like you suggested, a long-term study, but you go out there with surveying equipment and you can do your measure your your levels. I mean, it, it's it's interesting because you know, like I said, I grew up in Petersburg, and one of the best courses I ever took that I still carry with me and teach people things I learned in today when I'm out there in the field is surveying. So I learned how to do land surveying techniques there, and I still use them very, very frequently when I'm doing field work. And I was just out there with a the stadia rod and a level that Stargab and figuring out where these plots were and their mm-hmm. elevation. So oh, interesting. You know, one of the things that I've heard about Petersburg is that it's an interesting place to go. There's a guy named Aaron Baldwin, who I don't know if you've ever met him or not, but he, he works for Fish and Game now, but he uh, used to teach with me when I taught at Sheldon Jackson College and was really into marine invertebrates especially, but marine organisms more generally. And he said, I think I'm pretty sure it was Petersburg, like maybe it was even the ferry dock at Petersburg, that you get these otherwise deep water uh, marine organisms that are showing up intertidally. And there, and there's this, this kind of weird thing where you can find stuff there that you don't see intertidally anywhere else, but on a low tide there you can you can find them. I don't know if you're aware of those things or not, but I, like there's interesting that's something I've always been curious about with with Petersburg. I mean, one thing that I do notice, and you know, having, I guess it was last summer, going there and poking around the intertidal zone, um, 
it feels a lot like there's a lot more going on, a lot of productivity. And I think it has to do with strong current flow through the Wrangell Narrows there. Mm. And I was even thinking about and looking at some tide gauge comparisons of, say, inside versus outside water. So the tidal amplitudes are up to several meters greater once mm-hmm. you get in there. And then you have these constrained passageways and water just races through there. And I think that that high flow um, does a lot of things to the characteristics of organisms living there in terms of who lives there and nutrient delivery and things like that. Um, just kind of reflecting on some of the things I've seen, um, there are extensive kelp flats there that you don't really find as much in this area. I mean, there's definitely kelp here, but it, it doesn't look like it's quite doing doing quite as well. Um, it'd be great to, I mean, I've done a lot of measurements of nutrients and things like that around here. I've always wanted to go do work back around Petersburg and sort of see what's the same and what's different. But I wonder if nutrient concentrations, for example, are higher or different. Yeah, I, you know, Petersburg's not that far from Stikine River, and I'm, I mean, I guess I don't really have a sense of how currents go and how much of, like, there's a lot of stuff coming down the Stikine River, I have to imagine, and coming out and then getting transported via the marine currents uh, into the into the area. So I don't, it, do you have a sense of, of how the water's moving and whether the Stikine River would have an influence on Petersburg? I'm sure it does, and you also have more glacial influence right. from Lacan Glacier and even probably still some influence from Baird Glacier and the other glaciers there. So you have that, you know, closer to the mainland and, and some of those effects that probably play a role in the system. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's so many things. <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, it's always interesting to, to, for me at least, to compare and contrast, I guess, the different places. I haven't spent much time elsewhere in Southeast Alaska, mostly here in Sitka. But a few years ago, I did have a chance. We, we went and visited Baird Glacier and got to see that, what they call it, the Iceberg Garden or something. It, uh, it's not up Lacant Bay, but where the icebergs end up getting stuck somewhere just outside of the bay in the Petersburg area. And there, you know, I was walking around on land. We had a chance to do some of that. And it was interesting to see some different plants. Like, and they're just ones that, for whatever reason, don't show up here. And then, of course, icebergs were not something that I would ever see here in Sitka. Uh, so that was that was novel as well. But I'm always curious, like, what is it that's that's drawing these? So iceberg and mainland river are, are inflow, uh, sources of nutrients and minerals, I suppose, as well, that are impacting the, the marine system. The temperature is going to be colder, I suppose, of the water um, coming out of those places. And then... It's. I imagine it's warmer there in the summer and cooler in the winter in terms of just because it's more continental. Like we have such a heavy Gulf of Alaska influence here in Sitka. I was just talking with a friend that had been spending some time in Cake and he said, yeah, it was way warmer in Cake because the marine layer wasn't there. You know, the marine layer comes in here and other places in southeast Alaska are getting 70s and 80s even. And we're still sitting at 60, you know, as this heavy marine cloud layer comes in and yeah, even over the last few days where you know it was brilliantly sunny on the 4th of July in Petersburg it cleared off a little bit here but it was definitely a lot cloudier yeah. so one of the neatest things i did and i think it was back in about 2011 was my dad and i went out and just took his boat our target was to go kind of around Kupernoff island and then to go down rocky pass and we had these plans of going all the way around Kupernoff, but we didn't do it but because the weather kind of turned sour on us. But a com- combination of sort of geology and kind of poking around and 
seeing what we could find. But we pulled into this bay um, about kind of right at the entrance to Rocky Pass there. It was kind of a mind-blowing experience because this is a kind of a soft sediment type bay, not as extensive as something like Stargavin, but that type of a, you know, uh, tidal flat area. And yet there were, was kelp growing all over it. Huh. And, you know, we pulled, we had a little, um, little Zodiac that we brought in and pulled it up to shore. And I started looking around and I realized that what was going on was all these parchment tube worms, Eudistilia, the kind of feather duster worms, mm-hmm. were growing. And maybe they were just in the sediment or maybe they were growing on little pebbles or something. But the entire bay was full of them. And the kelp were growing on the tube worms. And so I actually published a paper on it just as a cool natural history observation because it was so neat, this idea of one foundation species like that, like these tube worms providing habitat hard substrate and otherwise soft substrate world that then the kelps were growing on and then creating this lush kelp forest that was entirely based on this partnership or this facilitation. I guess kelp needs something to anchor in because it's big. And so it likes to anchor on, well, around here we see it on rocks, but sometimes on barnacles, I guess, or something like that. And one thing that I've noticed over the years at the park is in the springtime, I was like, why is this kelp up in the... And then I also was wondering how all the rocks were getting, because the at part at the out at the far end of Totem Park, closer to the river now, the the beach is building up, and there's a lot of rock, and they're like fist size to you know golf ball size rocks that are up there, and I'm like, I, and the be- but the beach below it still seems pretty similar, so it like qualitatively it looks similar. It's just that over time, because I've been there and taken pictures, and I recognize logs that Mm -hmm. had been stranded there for a while that are now like 10 feet back, you know, it's gravel. And I was sitting on them at the top of the beach some years ago. And I was like, where's all this rock coming from? And then it dawned on me one day when I was kind of picking at some fucus there, but a lot of the fucus was attached to rocks. And it's like, it starts growing because there's plenty of rock there on that beach, but it isn't very heavy rock. And so when it gets big enough, the waves just, there's too much resistance and the waves just pick up those rocks via the kelp and move them up the shoreline. And so in the springtime, you'll see like, I, they used to be all saccharinas, I guess, but kelps essentially. And they'll be on a fist sized rock, you know, with a three foot blade and way up on the shore. And it's like, oops, that, that guy picked the wrong, picked the wrong one. So, so it's interesting that, so you found in this bay, otherwise soft sediments, that there was these two worms that essentially could live there and formed a solid enough base for the kelp to attach to and then not get pushed up onto the shore where it wasn't having any success. Exactly. Yeah. And so that, yeah, well, so then I guess that's a, yeah, what would it have been like without that, I suppose? Um, it would have, I think it just, would have just been a, a and it was, it was pretty muddy sediment too. Mm-hmm. So I don't think, I mean, there are a lot of cool things that live in muddy sediment, but it wouldn't have been as obvious as a kelp bed growing there in the low zone. Yeah. Well, that yeah, that's I guess spawns a whole host of questions. So that's something that you started looking into more generally, or had you already been looking into those kind of like how these species build on top of one another? Essentially, like there's a physical environment which everybody has to deal with, and then and then species modify physical environment by their own structures, I suppose, at some level, and create a changed physical i mean humans do it all the time but we're not the only ones i guess right so we we call these foundation species or okay. ecosystem engineers because they're sort of creating habitat 
um, foundation species is a direct um, sort of turning on its head the idea of a keystone species. It was actually coined by a student of Bob Payne. Bob Payne coined the idea of a keystone species, focusing on starfish. He was doing work in Washington, and his student um, came up with a similar idea um, of these species. But instead of having a strong top-down structuring effect like a predator, they have a bottom-up structuring effect by virtue of their sort of dominant biomass that they provide that other species can live on and grow on and um, use as a um, habitat resource. And and so you know, I've I've been interested in facilitations more broadly for a really long time. Kind of you know for a long time, ecology was mired in this idea of competition and predation and negative interactions. But um, you know people have always thought about mutualisms and facilitation and positive interactions. Um, but it was always like oh these are sort of like almost like it as an aside, not as an interaction on par with these other ones. But more recently, we've started realizing, and this really didn't start until about you know, sometime in the 90s, so comparatively recently, that these positive interactions were really important, especially in stressful environments. And then we, this comes back to the beginning of our conversation here if we talk about the inter intertidal zone being a stressful environment where organisms are having to deal with non-marine um, temperature, drying out, um, and, and so it turns out that these types of physical structure, stress amelioration provided by other species can be really important in how these communities are structured. And, um, and so that's an example of one of the projects we're working on here this summer, which is looking at facilitation and not just when you have one species providing habitat for other species, but what if that species then provides habitat for a second foundation species do you have add-on effects? Is diversity doubly enhanced or something like that? And so we're looking at a couple of pairings of organisms to try to tease out those interactions here as part of this global effort to look at similar types mm. of interactions. And the cool thing about that is um, because there are people working on it, the, the lead on the project is in New Zealand, but he also has um, work going on um, I think he was out there this last week in Australia doing similar sorts of work. Um, and so we're getting data from all types of different environments spanning temperature and latitude and species types to really get a handle on um, how common these types of interactions are and is there this added benefit of having one species growing on another species that then provides even more habitat. <laughs> yeah, I, it occurs to me that that like when we're talking about the intertidal in particular, but not even just the intertidal, but also a shoreline where there's wave action, um, that having nooks and crannies is important because it doesn't dry out as fast and, and you can anchor in there a little more easy. So like the barnacles or the mussels, you know, all these things that, that can grow fairly densely and are adding surface area and, and, um, and, uh, Porosity, that's probably not the right word, but, but gaps essentially in a three-dimensional sense. Because, uh, you know, and I'm going along the beach there. And then the seaweed on top of that. And so I'm not sure. I'm kind of curious, like, how much is this all included in this facilitation thing? Because, for example, the seaweed uh, that's there, it's anchored into the rocks and, and other things that are growing. But when the tide is out, the seaweed lays down and, and it's providing shelter like it i imagine makes a huge difference as to how desiccated things get if there wasn't seaweed or or eelgrass 
uh, or or surf grass, uh, depending on where it is, um, there as a as a sort of a, a, a mulch in a sense. Like the surface of that might dry out, but it's going to keep the lower part wet, and therefore make it possible to survive for the hermit crabs or, or whatever, or they'll be going. And at least in situations where there aren't rocks and cobbles that they could go down into. Um, and so is that all part of the facilitation thing or is that sort of separate from, from what you're looking at? I mean, that's definitely part of the facilitation thing. And one of the examples of a species pair that we're looking at is those big um, semi-balanced barnacles that live low on the shore. The thatched yeah. ones? The, or the, even the I guess, semi-balanced karyosis, The Yeah, semi-balanced yeah. karyosis. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're pretty good sized. And then mm-hmm. you often find something like... Um, like fucus, your rockweeds growing right on top of those barnacles. And, um, you know, it's sort of a two-way street there. Um, I think the barnacles provide a, a good landing place for the um, spores when they're in the water. Um, you know, again, looking at interstices of places that they could grow where they're slightly protected um, and probably protection from herbivores that are grazing on the rocks um, because they don't like to graze up and on top of the barnacles as much. But then the seaweed may in turn, um, as it grows up, then shade and shelter the barnacles and help them out when the tide is low and it gets warm and things like that. But what we're really focusing on, and you know, I hadn't, um, I mostly study seaweeds. And this is one of my first forays into getting on a microscope and looking at all of the different critters that are living in these associations. But it has been really mind-blowing to see how many species. I mean, you'll look at one set of, you know, a barnacle and a seaweed, or um, I'm also looking at mussels, which provide habitat, and then barnacles growing on those. And you'll find up to dozens, like, you know, and I mean, like, close to 30 or more species just on if you pick up one barnacle and one alga or one mussel with some associated barnacles you find so many different things living in there are you looking are, are some of the included in that microscopic things or is it is it definitely microscopic yeah, things okay, as so, well but i mean yeah yeah so i was thinking like all right when i'm down at the beach like i often see snails litorinas for example like in the zone that you're talking about it seems like the litorina snails are pretty common the periwinkles um and there's, uh, that might be lower. There's actually lichens that grow on the, those barnacles sometimes, which is interesting. There's a, uh, this year I was the first time I ever found it. it's a blue green algae that makes these little dark balls on, on there that I'd never seen before. Oh, cool. I, 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 I came up with a name for them based on stuff that has been in Europe. I don't know if that's actually what they are or not, but you know, they look, look pretty similar. Uh, and I'd never noticed those before. Uh, no end of things that I never noticed before. But but then, yeah, all the I suppose there's probably microalgae and there's tiny. I like every once in a while I just see the little skims of I think they're copepods or something, but little crustaceans and things that are also moving around in there. So you're collecting this and taking it back and trying to find everything that is uh, that. Like, how do you even begin to like you scraping it down and and seeing what's in the water or filtering it out or how do you how do you do that? So we'll we'll take the association back and um, and uh, yeah, we have a spray bottle that we can squirt um, salt water over them. We do it over a sieve to catch all the things. It's a, about a fifty micron mesh in the sieve, so we can spray it all down in there and we'll do visual um, assessments of 
the big stuff once we rinse it off just to see if there's anything still crawling on there and then go through all everything that was caught on the sieve. And, you know, you find um, roundworms and, um, and polychaetes and all kinds of things living in there. I mean, it's, it's a whole different world. Um, uh, and it, it becomes abundantly clear how important these are as habitat for other, you know, barnacles and mussels to settle. They're all over them. But a lot of it's, it's not, um, the magnification isn't huge. Um, you know, we're taking it up to about 30 times magnification. Um, but it's really, really astounding, all of the things that are living inside there. Yeah, thatched barnacles in particular, that species that you're looking at, are very, like compared to some of the other ones, they're very rough, <laughs> I guess. And they have a lot of these little grooves in there, or often have a lot of grooves in there. And I can imagine that that would be, Again, because of the harshness of that environment with the wave action and the um, and the heating drying during the day or cold, as the case may be, that those places provide shelter for small for small organisms of the size that, that you're talking about and that they can hold on or, or hide in there with the added benefit of uh, the seaweed. Although some, I imagine some of the stuff you're finding is just lives on the seaweed probably as well. Right. And there are certain, there are definitely things, certain epiphytes that are almost obligately associated with the seaweeds that add on, but then um, some of the same sorts of things. Um, so some of it's sort of nested one on top of another, and then some of it's just augmenting what's already there. And so what are you, you're, you're looking at, like, what do you compare it to? How do you compare and, and decide what is, well, things just live here and this happens to be where they're living and this is, there's an enhancement that's happening here. Cause I guess it seems like in order to, uh, there's an inherent comparison. It sounds like in saying it's an enhancement, but I don't know what, h- how you can, how it is that you, you figure out what you're comparing it to in terms of diversity. So because we're specifically interested in these facilitation cascades. So say I wanted to look at your thatched barnacles with the rockweed growing on them. Um, I would collect some thatched barnacles with no rockweed, some with a little bit, and some with a lot. And then you can look at that gradient. So how much does it add on? Does the second species add on to what the thatched barnacle would just support by itself? I see. I see. So so the thatched barnacle, and I guess it could be, well, <laughs> when I'm thinking about Sandy Beach in particular, where the thatched barnacles end up being, like, tall, then like because they're they they're, grow, they grow they're so densely together yeah, and yeah. They, they grow super tall but when when those go away there's almost nothing that like on the bare rock that the rock supports very little and i you know maybe that's cuz the sand or or just the wave action there can be pretty pretty strong uh so i suppose that would be the the uh the if nothing's there then then you know cuz cuz there are places i suppose where the the um, seaweed grows by itself, and you could, I guess, theoretically look at that separately also and see see how that compares to, as another base, you know, thatch barnacle by itself, seaweed by itself, and then seaweed on top of thatch barnacle. I don't think thatch barnacles would grow on seaweed, but I have seen barnacles in strange places, so I... <laughs> you never know. <laughs> I wouldn't put it past them. Yeah. For, for this effort, we're following the protocol that's been designed. Yeah. That would be a great comparison to make yeah. as well. Yeah, I just find myself getting curious about all the all the questions, which of course uh, isn't very practical when it comes to actually doing a research study and getting some answers that you can do something <laughs> do something with. But it is it's 
for me at least it's fun to go out and then just like have these wonderings is because I'd never really thought about that as you're describing that that facilitation cascade thing that happens and then and then saying okay so what's you know what's what's going on here I mean today I I noticed I don't remember noticing before there was a little snail it was a lacuna snail on a uh, eel uh, surf grass and on top of that was a little um, uh, I don't think it was uh, halisakian I don't think it was the the um, that that uh, uh, balloon one. There's another one that I can't begins with a B that I can't remember its name. Quadricladia. Yeah, sea it, grapes. Yeah. I think it was that one that was growing on top of the snail, and I don't remember noticing that before. But <laughs> that was kind of a little s- stack of organisms there. That was. I wonder how long that snail is destined to survive there before getting swept off. Yeah, that's what. That's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, wow, because it was it was taller than the snail, the little the little seaweed on it, and I was like, mm, it's probably not going to be too much longer that it can hold on there, but. Uh, but it was kind of funny to see that, and I saw the that that the sea grapes growing on some other things as well. It seems like there are definitely some seaweeds that prefer to anchor into uh, things other than rocks um, for for whatever reason. So, are you just doing the preliminary stuff now for this uh, cascade? Looking at these facilitation uh, um, relationships. So we're going through the whole protocol as designed, like I said, by this um, colleague of ours in New Zealand, and ultimately these will provide part of this larger story of how these occur around the world. But depending on the form they take in that analysis, it's certainly possible that we'll carve out our little Sitka portion of it mm. and see, you know, dig further into the specific patterns here. So is it, so this is a, um, at this point, a, a strictly dis- descriptive uh, study where you're, you're just looking at these examples and looking at what's on them and making that comparison as opposed to trying to go in and trim off the seaweed and, and, you know, manipulate in some fashion? As of right now. But yeah, it, yeah, it, it would be a pretty straightforward system to manipulate, and that would be a neat experiment. Yeah, yeah. Well, no end of questions. I guess that's what keeps science people in business, right? So, <laughs> um, and I, I, well, when I ran into you earlier, you said you were, um, one of the things that you're doing here, and I don't, maybe it's uh, not related to the facility, facilitation uh, cascade things, but the uh, you're putting up little greenhouses on the beach to uh, see what happens with the, the temperatures? So we have two very different projects going on yeah. here. One of them is the facilitation cascade work, and the other one is trying to see if we can simulate intertidal heat waves. And so we know that not only are average temperatures increasing around the world, but temperature extremes are increasing. So we're particularly interested in whether or not we can do relatively short-term manipulations causing heat wave type conditions, elevating the temperature five or six or seven degrees above sort of ambient typical temperatures and see what types of effects these extreme events might have on the community. I mean, you can think about things like the heat dome that hit uh, the Puget Sound area a few years ago. Um, and even some of the shorter um, events that we've seen around here, um, like I think a month or two ago, there was a period of abnormally warm weather. Um, and those can have really profound effects, especially if they happen during the spring, during prime growing conditions for a lot of the seaweeds and sort of when the, the system's getting set up seasonally. So what I'm trying to do now is see whether or not we can use these you know, pop-up greenhouse cloches that you would use in your garden if you were trying to protect your plants in the springtime to create, you know, magnify a, a sunny weather event 
and raise the temperature by several more degrees and see, well, what would it look like if this were, in fact, a real heat wave? And um, we had more extreme weather conditions. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting how, well, I'd be curious, I guess, how much the, uh, I, I would imagine that the sun intensity, especially on, on beaches that have dark, which around here seems to be most of them, uh, you know, a dark surface, that the sun, the you know, the degree of cloudiness probably makes a huge difference because the sun could just directly warm. Even if the air temperature isn't that warm, like the surfaces seem like they heat up quite a bit. And so I don't know what, how that would um, affect, like, like how much the air temperature is, is affecting versus just the direct solar heating. And I'm, I don't know what the language would be to describe the, <laughs> the different ways in which the heating is happening. Um, but have you found anything with that just in, in what you've been doing so far? So I went out there, um, not last Friday, but the Friday before when it was sunny, and I set up some of these different types of greenhouses to see how they would work. And I also put temperature loggers out just on, um, it was in the fucus, so sort of nestled in the fucus canopy. And um, the greenhouses definitely worked. They raised temperatures. Um, but it was surprisingly warm just there. And it wasn't, I mean, this was, the, the loggers weren't even on the rock itself. They were just in the fucus canopy, in the rockweed canopy. Um, just kind of tucked in there along it. And I was seeing temperatures well over 100 degrees wow. um, just right there on the surface. Wow. So things do get pretty warm. Yeah. <laughs> the warmest, I think, I have a little thermometer that I often take with me places. And I've noticed a big difference just like setting it on the ground. So it's not touching the ground necessarily, but setting it on the ground so it's measuring within an inch of the surface. And lifting it up just a few inches can make a big difference on a sunny day. If, if there's like rock that's been warmed up. But the hottest temperature I ever measured was on a beach, a black sand beach on Kruzov. And the, I, I got temperatures over 120 degrees, I think maybe even pushing 130 on the black sand. They're just, just like in the very surface. That one I had to just put it just under the surface of the sand. Um, and that's where it was the hottest. But if you stuck it down into the sand, it you know that temperature didn't go very deep. And I don't know how insulating, it sounds like, that from your data loggers that the that that temperature was going down into the fucus at least a little bit um but i don't know yeah if, were, did you have some that were sort of at the at the base underneath to see how deep that warmth was going i was trying to i have had specific individuals mm -hmm. that i had tagged and was measuring so i was actually looking at photosynthesis rates and oh, okay. how they were responding to changes in temperatures and these different treatments so i was targeting those specific individuals I and see. so it wasn't all the way down it was like right by the blade surface yeah yeah did the oh i mean could you tell already or is that something that you have to go back and look at the data later to see if there's there's effects on photosynthesis yeah it looks like i haven't yeah. actually analyzed the data but sort of just eyeballing it um the biggest uh what seems to be driving a change in photosynthetic efficiency is desiccation okay and to the extent that temperature is associated with higher rates of drying out, yeah. then you do see a stronger collapse in photosynthesis over time when you elevate temperatures. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, back to what we were talking about earlier in the zonation and how a cold event can, can drive things. And I suppose a hot event could also drive them. And I'm, you know, with plants on land, they, they operate obviously different than, than seaweeds and things like that. But I know that 
it matters when the cold happens. Like there are times when it's plants fine if it gets cold. And there are other times if it gets the same temperature, it's going to be a real problem for the plant because it's not set up for that. And is that some of the seaweeds have very short growing seasons, like they're only there for a couple of weeks or something in the form that we can see them anyway. They're presumably there in some form otherwise, but uh, and others are more long lived, like the macrocystis is, is basically there all the time at some level. Uh, are there sensitive times for for some of these seaweeds or organisms that are where where they would be particularly sensitive? You mentioned the spring maybe in is a prime growing season for many of them. And talking to some of the folks here that are looking at kelp forests, the things actually, some of the kelp start growing pretty early because the water is so clear. And even though the sun isn't that high yet, because of the clarity of the water, they're they're getting almost as much sun as they would get in the summer when the water is not as clear. Uh, so things can start growing pretty early here. But um, yeah, is there times that are sensitive windows, I guess, where, where uh, a warm or you know, less, less often, I suppose, a cold event might have more damage than it might at another time? I think the spring is one to pay very close attention to because up until maybe about April, there's a reasonable amount of nitrogen in the water. Mm-hmm. And then after April, it drops to very low concentrations, sort of in that spring transition. And so that's critical for setting up the growing season for all sorts of things. Kelps can store that nitrogen internally um, and then use it for as long as their stores last. Um, there are even some kelp species in the high Arctic that, um, for which nitrogen acquisition and growth are entirely disconnected. Hmm. So they suck up all their nitrogen in, in the wintertime when there's, they'll even grow under the sea ice wow. where there's no light at all, right? They'll, they'll, they'll be sitting there, but they'll just be sponges sucking up nitrogen and then they take those stores and then eventually they have plenty of light, right? And then they use that stored nitrogen to fuel growth. And so there's this sort of sweet spot between nitrogen availability and light availability. And I think that transition happens sometime around March or April, where there's still enough nitrogen in the water to fuel growth, especially for these ephemeral forms, things like uh, sea lettuce or black seaweed um, that are thin, they're, um, they grow quickly, um, and they don't have a lot of nitrogen storage capacity. And so those are the ones to probably keep a real eye on. The work I've done looking at heat wave effects further south has suggested that those are exactly the species that are likely to respond to these types of events. And so they could, I mean, I don't understand their life cycle enough to know if, if like a bad year could, could, essentially wipe them out in an area until they can come in from somewhere else. I don't know how easy it is. I don't know how much they're moving around, I guess, in terms of like reproduction and how long, like for plants, a shrub is surviving year to year. And that's probably like the kelps that you're describing. The, the And so a bad year where they don't set fruit, not a big deal. They're in it for the long haul. An annual pretty much has to set fruit every year, except for uh, many of them or like desert plants, for example, are adapted to like just sitting as seeds for decades even, I suppose, until there's bright conditions, usually moisture of some sort, and then they'll, they'll all go. Uh, so I don't know how it works with seaweed. If they're like the equivalent of a seed bank or something that or spores or something that are there in the system. So if there's a bad year and a failure to, um, to reproduce, 
uh, of that year's uh, growth due to whatever environmental conditions, can they come back or do they have to come in from elsewhere? Or, I mean, I suppose there's a lot of different seaweeds, so it probably depends on the seaweed, but I don't, I don't really have a sense of, of the, the possibilities there. The possibility is definitely there. Um, there have been analogs to um, seed banks or spore banks that have been demonstrated for a lot of different species. One of the cool things about red algae, like black seaweed, which is in the rhodophyta, the red algae, is they actually have uh, they have a, a very complicated life cycle. That's a triphasic life cycle, hmm. um, and it involves this funny little stage called the conchocoelous stage that relies on um, a calcium carbonate shell. Oh wow! And so you find them in barnacles and stuff like that bored in there in this sort of almost like a resting stage. And then when conditions are right, they can come back out and complete the life cycle. In fact, that was key to uh, being able to effectively cultivate nori, porphyra or pyropia, that same genus in Mm -hmm. Japan for making um, sushi and for other um, cooking purposes is the discovery of that uh, life history phase. And it was made by um, a British psychologist named Kathleen Drew Baker. And she figured out that that they required a calcium carbonate shell. And so then the Japanese oyster farmers began to put um, oyster shells under their, um, the racks where they were growing the nori. And she's actually credited with saving the industry Wow. There's like a statue of her in Japan. They call her the mother of seaweed for making this discovery of wow. how that life cycle actually works. So in these barnacles that you're looking at, I mean, there, so there could be these red algae burrowed in. I'm, I'm, I don't imagine that. I mean, if they're burrowed in, they're probably not coming off when you're spraying them in, in, into your filtering system. But uh, but that would be part of in that cascade. I mean, like if those the seaweed or that in the facilitation, if those barnacles weren't there, then they wouldn't have anything to, to be there for, or, I mean, they won't, ha- they wouldn't be able to do that stage right there. And so they wouldn't be able to come back, uh, or, or complete that part of their life cycle. Yes. And the people here, there are people here in Southeast Alaska who are working on cultivating, um, black seaweed, these types of species, and they definitely use shells. And I've seen pictures that they've taken of these shells when you can see the little red filaments growing in boring into the shells oh interesting after so so if i were to yeah if i were to want to try and find this i guess i'd be looking for as probably as a certain time of year and and they you can, can maybe with magnification you can see the little filaments yeah and if they're if they're dense enough you can actually see them with the naked eye you oh, can wow. pick up a shell and see these all these tiny little red filaments i mean you know obviously when they're growing them for aquaculture they're right. deliberately seeding them and you can looks like a big you know, like a red fuzz over the shell surface. But, you know, with the hand lens, you could probably That's look around and maybe find something. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I, you know, my my big excitement is is the yellow boring sponge. The um, not, not because it's not exciting, but because it bores into shells and you just little, little yellow circles in there. But I'd never, I didn't realize that red algae did that. I mean, not the same thing exactly, but did something like that as well. And that was part of their their life cycle. Uh, huh. And so then that's where they, they spend part of the year and then they come out of that and, you know, move into the other stages. 
Right. They yeah. There's another. There's a step involved, but it's required for them to complete the life cycles to go into that shell boring stage. But I, you know, just as an aside, I I sometimes get mystified. Is like, how did all these things evolve? (laughs) You know, it seems so complicated, Uh, and and yet here we are that they do that for the red algae. I think they don't have flagellated sperm, if I remember right, and so this allows them to sort of magnify production to allow a successful completion of the life cycle uh-huh. something like that yeah and the red algaes are seem to be quite diverse i don't i don't it seems like there's probably more of them than either green or brown algaes you know based on what i was looking at at the beach today it seemed like i i don't know do you have a sense of the kind of relative diversity of of the kind of three main or that maybe they're just the three seaweed groups i mean the reds are definitely more diverse um but the browns, kind of in the broadest sense, also include things like diatoms. Oh, right. Yeah. So, I mean. So, let's, let's, let's say macroscopic. Right. <laughs> macroscopic algae, the seaweeds. But, yeah, yeah, I guess chromista has all those the, um, diatoms and, and lots of dinoflagellates, all those lots of plankton sorts of things. And, and it's also, I, I think, worth noting that it, these represent entirely different lineages. So, the the brown algae, you know, kelps and rockweeds and things like that, and then diatoms. And that group is that the split between those and then the sort of in the loose sense plants, because red and red algae and green algae actually group more closely with the land plants. That split is like two billion years oh, old, so it goes way back. Yeah, I think is Chromista a kingdom? That's the kind of the broad, it's, broadest group. It's sort of the equivalent of a kingdom. Okay. I mean. I don't know if we're supposed to call them kingdoms anymore, but fair enough. Um, yeah, I, I'm more of a sort of I like I'll call myself a pragmatic naturalist. It's helpful to have names to sort of talk right. about things generally, um, and I don't do as well keeping up with the. I understand that for taxonomists that and especially evolutionary taxonomists like those things, those categories need to mean something in terms of where they came from. Um, but that is. Uh, interesting, but I, harder for me to keep in my head, uh, pretty much. Um, but yeah, the I guess it's Phaeophyceae or something like that, which seems to incorporate like our kelps and so fucus and all. That's that. the class. That okay. Is the yeah the the brown macroalgae. Okay. Yeah, and then the, as opposed to something like Basilariophyceae, which is the class that's the diatoms. Okay. Yeah, and there's plenty of those out there to find as well. If you're, are you finding those in your in your facilitation um, study, or are you not going quite that small? We can definitely see them. Okay. We count them when they're there. All right. So, yeah. really cool little diatom chains that we find nestled in among the um, the things that we're washing into the sieves. And how hard is it to get names on all of the stuff that you're finding? We do our best. Yeah. Um, but for some of these, like those. I'm only going to go to the class level because you know, it would take a lot of effort to try to figure out, you know, beyond that. I mean, I can I can go maybe down to the order. Like I can say that those are centric diatoms because they're forming chains, as opposed to pennate diatoms, which are the little kind of oblong ones that skate around on the surface of the sediment. Yeah, yeah. I um, as somebody who likes to do iNaturalist and find new species and stuff, it's it's uh, it's been interesting how there are some microscopic groups that get a fair amount of attention. Like there are people that are really into them and have done a fair amount of work and there's decent resources to actually identify them. And if you can get a decent picture of them, somebody can put a name on it. And then there are other groups, not even all microscopic, like the um, 
Like there's no end of polychaete worms that are just like you might get a fam you get a family on and, and not much not much beyond that. There's just too much work yet to be done, I guess, to be able to to call anything uh, any any more refined than that. Or you need to do microscopic dissection work to to start to get into that. So it's yeah, it's always fascinating to me. I had just assumed that microscopic stuff would be hard to identify, generally speaking, but um, that's not always turned out to be the case. Uh, yeah, one of the groups I've spent some time trying to parse my way through last night was the nematodes, and I oh. very, very quickly said, absolutely no way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what is it? it's, it's like the nematodes, it seems like I've, I've heard pretty much every organism probably has a, a nematode associated with it, just about, and, and maybe more than one. Uh, they're, they're one of those groups that seems to be everywhere. But there are also a whole bunch of free-living free living ones. ones. In fact, I'm because I was trying to sort of figure out what kind of taxonomic work had been done in Southeast Alaska, they end up being the most numerically abundant organism in the sediment in studies that have been done. A lot of work, for example, near the lab in Ock Bay. Mm -hmm. And it'll be like nematodes and then harpactoid copepods. And, you know, good luck with either of them, really. <laughs> most, people, yeah. most, mo most people just say, yeah, we're going to look at, we're just going to group them as nematodes. Yeah. Well, I suppose with, uh, I, like I recently was speaking with Ian Houston, who is a, I don't know if you know him or not, or know of him, but he uh, is a virologist and um, does, he did some work on sea star wasting and, and more recently did uh, looked into the uh, die off of a species of sea urchin in the Caribbean. But generally speaking, they're looking at, at viruses, which are small. And so they don't, you know, you it's genetic stuff that they're they're doing, but he said that the way that the way that uh, modern um, genetic analysis or, or the ability to to get DNA out uh, has increased so much that you know they're basically just running these that they're running these samples and and seeing the diversity based on the DNA that's coming out of there. And so I wonder if something like nematodes or, or something like that, if you you can get a if that's the direction it would end up going, is that you get a sample and you don't. You can't tell which one's which. Like if, if even if you could get a decent picture of it through a microscope, you're not going to be able to identify them as different. But you could say within this collection, there's this much diversity or something like that. And the people who are doing work on nematodes, you know, including in, um, you know, I, I saw a recent study that had done work all along the coast of Alaska and stretching down in a bunch of different places, and it's all genetically based. Yeah. And so, for a project like you're doing, how does that how does that fit in? Like, do you are you able to collect those in a way that you could theoretically send them off and and consider that diversity, or is that just because for practical reasons, just not something that you can address? And you're going to look at diversity, except for within you know to that level of of grouping, but not beyond that. So we can say that you know it at least adds one or. Yeah something to the number of species and we can count the abundance and things like that. Um, uh, things that are really, really puzzling. We're taking some voucher spe specimens back. Um, but, uh, you know, and ideally we'd be preserving everything, but it's a little tricky to do here. Hmm. How, how, what's the tide level that you're looking at these? So um, Fucus isn't that deep. And, and the thatch barnacles are not like high intertidal, but they're kind of like mid intertidal. Yeah, mid intertidal. Yeah. And we, we have sort of two, we're collecting at two tidal elevations, which is sort of the upper and lower distribution oh, okay. of each of those organisms. 
And have you found any uh, beetles? The larvae, definitely. Oh, the larvae. Okay. Yeah, because I know there's some intertidal rove beetles that somehow, I don't know, they're air breathers, so they're they're doing the opposite of the marine organisms, I guess, and figuring out some way to, to survive when the tide's up. Um, but I've found them a couple different times, and, and I saw a paper where there's like 19 different species of intertidal rove beetles in Alaska or something like that. I don't, not so many in southeast Alaska, but... Mostly but, as larvae? As the, no, like the as adults. The I adults found the adults, yeah. So, I, yeah, that's been... That's why I was kind of curious, because when I have seen them, they've been a, in, by a shell or something, you know. Everywhere I've looked in sort of teasing apart um, turfs and look for, you know, in, in interstices, um, whenever I've done a project like that, and, you know, I did this project on, um, on green algal turfs, a similar sort of thing a few years back, I always turn up insect larvae especially. Huh. They're definitely there, and they're definitely kind of um, uh, an important part of the system. I know there's flies that go after barnacles. I don't know if they go after the thatched barnacles specifically or, or more small ones. And then there's also, like often, mites seem to be everywhere. Uh, Definitely mites. Yeah. <laughs> Just mites mites all over. They're another one that's, uh, well, you find them and, and you can at least get a little smaller than the mites. The groups, they're usually, like the broad groups of mites are usually not too hard, but uh, they can be challenging. There's a few people on iNaturalist that, that seem to be into mites, but uh, there's only so much you can do, it seems like, with those. But uh, yeah, it sounds like a fascinating project. And so you're expecting this to, for, for this year, is part of that broader project organized or, or designed by the person in New Zealand, and uh, but perhaps becoming a multi-year project? or I, I could see that one expanding further. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also the um, the climate manipulation work, right. the greenhouse stuff. I mean, if we can get that heat wave stuff um, ramped up, that's probably the next proposal we'll actually submit is to try to get some of that work going. Well, it'd be interesting to hear what what results you you get out of this work. It's always fascinating to me. The, there's so much going on and like no end of things that, we, that, that could be studied <laughs> and no end of things to notice while you're out there. But uh, yes, we're kind of Coming to the end here, is there anything that you'd like to uh, say before we wrap up? I just want to stress how great it is to always come back to the Sitka community and be able to um, not only study the natural systems, but um, spend time here and um, see familiar faces and meet new people. And um, it's always a special place to come back to. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming back. And so if people see little greenhouse things on the beach, that's probably you. <laughs> Absolutely. And yeah. I'm always happy to talk to folks. So yeah, feel free to, to uh, stop. So thanks for coming in, Matt. Absolutely. Always a pleasure. You've been listening to a conversation I recorded earlier this month with Matt Bracken. I want to thank him for taking some time to visit with me and thank you for joining me here on the Sitka Nature Show this week. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or you can get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. Until next time, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCAW Sitka.